Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Med Conversations that you have accidentally or intentionally tuned into. I'm Darvel. And it's bangers like that that'll keep you listening. It's Rahul here. <laughs> and uh, today we're talking about the bread and butter of any doctor, acute coronary syndrome. You should probably know a thing or two about it, I reckon. All right, so let's start with Duncan's story. He's a 64-year-old guy who comes in with chest pain. What are your thoughts? What are your differentials with chest pain, stuff you can't miss when you're sitting in the ED? So there's the six no-miss bangers, the NMBs as I call them. Um, <laughs> acute coronary syndrome, aortic dissection, pulmonary embolism, tension pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade, and esophageal rupture. Yeah. So those are emergency causes of chest yeah. pain. Cannot miss them. So the top three you can actually rule out or in with a CT angiogram, which is why that gets ordered so much. Mm. Uh, so there are other differentials for chest pain as well. So other cardiac causes, you can think about acute heart failure, valvular disease, inflammation or arrhythmias. Then the other pulmonary causes, so respiratory infections, pulmonary hypertension can do it, chest malignancy or pleural effusions. Then you've got your GI causes, particularly reflux is really common, musculoskeletal causes. So in pretty much everyone with chest pain, I always press on the area and see if it's tender because that makes musculoskeletal causes way more likely. And then, more like I had a patient the other day who was sitting in the rural emergency department waiting for some for a second troponin, and I just went up and pressed on her muscle, her pec, and she just jumped up in pain. And it was the <laughs> exact pain she'd been having when she'd come to the emergency department 12 times in the last two months with the same thing and really? the troponins twice every time. Yeah. Wow. Sent her home with an outpatient physio appointment. <laughs> Thank goodness for you, Rahul. I know. <laughs> Going around saving Australian lives one by one. <laughs> All right. So moving on... Uh, so you've got a you've got a person with chest pain and you're suspicious of ischemic heart disease, and there's a specific mnemonic that you can you can go through to try and figure out what what kind of pain it is and get a better sense whether it's ischemic or not. So it's called the O and then PQRST mnemonic. So it kind of basically just follows the stuff you see in an ECG. The stuff you see in an so, alphabet, for example. <laughs> so onset. Um, in a, in a cardiac-type chest pain, is it gradual or, or acute? Is it bang, sudden stroke-like onset of chest pain? It's to be kind of bang. No, it's more so. gradual. Okay. More gradual. So go. if the chest pain is more gradual, you're, you're more likely to think about ischemic heart disease. If it was really bang-like chest, like chest pain, I'd be more concerned about pulmonary embolism myself. And then you've got to think about P, provocation and palliation, so worth, worse with exercise and exertion. Quality, so this is... I don't really hang my hat too much on this, but there's a certain like chest pain ischemic quality that people describe, so it's more likely to be crushing. When people stay, start seeing it sharp or stabbing, it's less likely to be mm. um, cardiac-type chest pain. Radiation, so whether it goes to the arms or the neck in particular. Mm. The jaw. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so sight. So again, with cardiac chest pain, it's more diffuse. They're like, ah, oh, it's just everywhere. It's just kind of like someone sitting on me. Vague. If they can... Say like right here, this fifty percent coin type side press on that bad boy. Probably not cardiac. Mm. And then the time course as well. So you get really worried with uh, what you think is cardiac chest pain if it starts going for more than twenty minutes. That's that's an acute coronary syndrome. That's what we worry about. And on the flip side, if it's chest pain that's going for days and days and days, like terrible chest pain, unlikely they would have died by now (laughs) if it was ischemic cardiac pain. Yeah. Right, so I find it's, it's always good as well in people who have a history of angina to be like, does this feel like your normal angina? Yeah, it's exactly. a simple so, question. It's a really great question to, to ask. Mm. 
So going back to Duncan's chest pain, so he said it was gradual in onset, so that fits with cardiac. It started two hours before coming into the emergency department, but it was kind of waxing and waning. It wasn't there the whole time. And he was just sitting and watching TV at the time, so that's worrying that he wasn't actually exerting himself. It was unstable angina. He didn't describe it as a sharp pain, but more of a discomfort. He was actually a bit hesitant to say, is it pain at all? He's just like, ah, oh, it's, just, it's just kind of yeah, uncomfortable, sort of crushing type feeling. And it radiated to both arms. And he actually said the pain in the arms was worse than the chest. He wasn't able to localize it, just generally the chest area. And it lasted more um, than the five-minute episodes that he's had previously. So it felt like the angina he had previously, as you suggested, that's a great question to ask. But it was had been going for much longer, much longer than the five-minute episodes he was uh, used to. So he came to ED. So that's kind of the history of presenting complaint. And then you, you start asking some background questions to find out the setting of this chest pain. Is this in someone who's likely to have ischemic heart disease or is it someone that's likely to have a muscle tear? Keep in mind this is all context-related. So obviously if someone's having an acute ST elevation MI and they're you know, arresting, you're not trying to find out when exactly they last smoked <laughs> and how long they were smoking for. <laughs> yeah, um, probably not. So there's something called the Framingham score, which is a really good um, score to figure out how likely someone is to have uh, ischemic heart disease. And basically, it, it predicts their 10-year risk of a, of a myocardial infarction or, of an, or an acute ischemic event. And there's five things that it looks like. It looks at age, which drives most of the risks, and that it looks at sex, cholesterol, smoking status, and blood pressure. That's it, just five things. So plug it in to your Framingham score app, and it will give you a percentage risk. And less than 10% is low risk, 10 to 20 is immediate, intermediate, and greater than 20 is high risk. Just something to keep in mind with the Framingham risk score is that this is validated for long-term prediction of ischemic yeah. heart disease yeah. mortality as opposed to acute in the Yeah, yeah. so this is, the back, this is the background of the mm-hmm. patient. So is this person likely to have ischemic heart disease in general? Not mm-hmm. is this event likely to be an ischemic mm-hmm. event? It's important to point that out, thanks. Mm-hmm. But it's not so good in women. This is back in the 60s where times are a bit different and we, mm-hmm. <laughs> we focused on the men a little bit more. So it's important to note it's not it's not a great it's not a great score for women. We've got something called the Reynolds risk score, which is more useful for that patient population. So a little bit more about risk factors. So modifiable risk factors, the kind of banner study looking at modifiable risk risk factors for heart disease is the interheart study, and that looked at nine factors. So in order of importance, what's the king? What's the king risk factor? Cholesterol is king in heart disease. Yeah. So cholesterol number one risk factor. So an important way to remember is that Cholesterol is really a really big deal in the heart, and, and blood pressure is a really big deal in the brain, but vice versa isn't really true. So hypertension, less important in the heart, and cholesterol, uh, you know, even arguable whether it has a huge impact on, on um, cerebrovascular disease. Um, so cholesterol is number one. Number two is smoking. And interestingly, psychosocial stresses is number three. So it's above diabetes, it's above hypertension, it's above abdominal obesity. It's a number number three risk factor. So we should maybe think about that a little bit more when we've got patients coming in. Mm. And then the last three are moderate alcohol intake, lack of exercise, and lack of veg and fruit intake. So top nine, cholesterol, smoking, psychosocial stresses, diabetes, hypertension, abdominal obesity, moderate alcohol intake, lack of exercise, and lack of veg and fruit. So, Duncan. Let's get a nice picture of what that interheart study looks like in our minds. Yeah, yeah. An old man, he's got high cholesterol, he's smoking, he's abominably obese, abominably (laughs) obese. He only eats 
potatoes and that's it. No fruit and veg. No fruit. And it's pretty sad as well. And so, he's got high blood pressure. Mm. Side note. Boom. So he's not, he's not doing so well in terms of ischemic heart disease risk. His Framingham score is well and above greater than 20%, so high pretest probability in this guy. He also has a strong family history. His dad died of a heart attack in, in his 50s. So moving on to the examination uh, in someone with acute coronary syndrome. This isn't one of those times where you're bringing out your fancy test to, to impress people. You're not, you're not looking for water hammer pulses. Mm-hmm. You're not looking, capillaries. You're not looking at the, the retina. Yeah. This is um this is the important big bang, stuff bang, first. Bang. So are they responsive? Is there evidence of shock? Is there any evidence of heart failure? Are they overloaded? And do they does it look like they have a stroke as well? Because I might be thrombolizing this person. I don't want them to bleed out. So four goals: Are they stable? Are they shocked? Are they overloaded? Are they neurologically intact? That's what you should be focusing and on. just keep in mind with the heart failure part, it's always good to have a quick listen to the heart to see if they've got any murmurs of, say, a ventricular septal yeah, rupture yeah, or yeah. MR for yeah, a capillary yeah. muscle rupture. Those things are Great. critical. Yeah, yeah. You should be moving as soon as you can onto the ECG, the electrocardiogram. And this is, this is the important test because it allows us to differentiate between what we call a STEMI and what we call a non-STEMI. It's called a STEMI that stands for ST elevation myocardial infarction, and that means it's a transmural infarct. So that dead tissue goes all the way through the heart muscle, and it's really bad news and needs a different management pathway to a non-STEMI. So in a, in a STEMI, in ST elevation, what's the transmural infarct? What do you see on an ECG? So if you were sitting there and you were just ablating someone's myocardium with alcohol, mm. what would you see first? So you start off with hyperacute T waves, that's big T waves in whatever leads you're looking at. That's the first sort of few hours, and then you develop ST elevation hours to sort of days, and then they'll start to drop down. You get T wave inversion, that's sort of hours to days to weeks, and then eventually you'll develop Q waves, which is sort of weeks to months. And they can last forever. Yeah, and keep in mind that it's not necessarily a stepwise progression, i.e. that some ST elevation will not go to Q-wave infarction later on. So ST elevation is the real one that we, we put our money on, and that's what we really look for mm. in differentiating the two and deciding a management pathway. Very, very important. You can't miss this kind of thing. So mm. what is the definition of ST elevation? So it's an elevation of more than one, lit, one millimeter, so one small square of uh, your ST segment between where your QRS ends and where yeah. your T begins, obviously, yeah, yeah. Uh, in two anatomically you know, corresponding leads. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's also some different criteria for... V2, V3. Mm, interesting. Uh, so in V2, V3, uh, you need greater than two millimeters. Mm. And we'll talk about this in a second. Uh, benign early repolarization trap for young players because in V2, V3... ST elevation can look a bit higher than it actually is because of this phenomenon called high takeoff. Mm. And uh, it's very, very common for people to freak out as they look at an ECG and it says at the top of the automatic reading acute myocardial infarction and they can see this huge ST elevation, or not huge, but ST elevation in, in V2, V3, but in front of them is a young, fit 25-year-old with no chest pain. So that's very likely to be what we call benign early repolarization or high takeoff. Interestingly, it's not really that benign. There's a new paper out by the, uh, all the major societies which says that there's probably some long-term you know, uh, differences in people who have elevated J points or ele- you know, that ST elevation compared to normal people. Cool. 
in clinical practice, though, I'm not as worried about that as someone with an ST elevation. All right, so you've got this, you've got this STEMI ECG in front of you, and you do see some ST elevation, but you want to know which part of the heart is being affected, what type of ST um, elevation, in fact, is it? And so they different different leads correspond to ischemia in different parts of the heart. So the an- anterior wall ischemia, which leads is associated with that? They're really looking at V1 to V6, yeah. um, especially sort of V1 to V4. Yeah. Anteroceptal ischemia? V1 to V3. Yeah. Apical or lateral ischemia? So lateral is AVL and 1, and V4 to V6 can also be apical. Yeah. Inferior wall ischemia? Leads 2, 3, and AVF. That's a classic. Everyone knows that. <laughs> and um, right ventricular ischemia. So this is difficult. You need to actually put on some right-sided precordial leads. So you That's need to right, find yeah. a helpful nurse who knows what she's doing yeah, to get yeah. them put on. And then there's um, posterior wall ischemia, which is similar, right? Yeah, you need to get some separate uh, separate leads put on by someone who knows where to put them. Yeah, so that's something you're going to have to specifically ask for. Or do yourself. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or do yourself, but it's not something that will come on a standard ECG. So you should be doing, you should be thinking about the need for posterior or right ventricular um, leads when there's an inferior infarct, because that means that the right coronary might be affected, and that can affect those other areas as well. And the other situation is when you've got ST depression in the anterior leads, uh, because that could actually just be reciprocal changes from a posterior infarct. You might actually have ST elevation on the back of the heart. You're seeing the mirror image of yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, that, so you know which part of the muscle is affected, which part of the heart wall is affected. So the next question is, what artery does that correspond with? So we'll start with an inferior STEMI. That's the most common type of STEMI. What can you can you say definitively which artery is affected? Not definitely. No, yeah. it can be. Any... The deal in probabilities always. So mm. probably the right coronary. Eighty percent of inferior STEMIs are related to a right coronary problem. But it can actually be any any artery. It can also be the left circumflex. That's eighteen percent of the time, and it can very very occasionally be left um, anterior descending. So if you're on a ward round and someone says, what artery is this? You've got to say, I don't know. I don't know. Just be casually non-committal <laughs> at all times. The, you might ask Rahul and Davo, why the hell are you telling me about this? You guys suck. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, that's a very helpful thing to say. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the feedback. <laughs> we appreciate it all. It was more Email me at medconversations.com <laughs> for more. Uh, um, but it actually helps you work out what sort of complications you might be exactly. seeing from the... Uh, from the infarct. So, for example, right coronary is often associated with a lot of your conduction systems. So you might see bradycardias mm. or conduction blocks. Mm. The uh, left, left anterior is associated. You can also with... get conduction block, but then you're really worried in the in the left yeah. anterior. Yeah. So you get transient bradycardia. Don't don't, don't put in a pacemaker. Give them some atropine if, if they need the, it. If it's a right but if coronary. it's a if it's a left anterior descending and they've got bradycardia, that that's pretty cactus. Yeah, yeah. They're gonna need a pacemaker at the very least. Um, Okay, so that's a bit about that. What about the other? Uh, what about the other territories? So, oh, so I guess an- anterior STEMIs generally an LAD, and they carry yeah. the worst prognosis. descending, yeah. LAD supplies the largest amount yeah. of ventricular myocardium, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the artery and lateral STEMIs it tends to be the left circumflex. Yeah, yeah. and the posterior and uh, right ventricular areas. So you can either have a. Uh, left circumflex, which is supplying your posterior area, and your RCA tends to supply your right can be ventricular. Posti- well, can be posterior as well. And it can be posterior. Um, and right ventricular is RCA, yeah. Mm. That's it. Cool. 
Uh, so just a really important point about the ECG is that you need to do serial ones. You can't do the first one. If someone comes in like looking diaphoretic, like they're in shock. Um, but the first ECG is normally like, okay, cool, not a STEMI. Go home. You're <laughs> yeah. <up>. <laughs> yeah, like, all right, it's functional, whatever. Yeah. No, you got to keep doing ECGs. you got to keep, if you're clinically worried, you just got to keep. Particularly if they're ongoing symptoms, just yeah. keep getting exactly. ECGs. So in two series, the initial ECG in an acute coronary syndrome was non-diagnostic in 45% of cases. So that's less than half. So just keep doing them. All right, so non-STEMI, non-ST elevation MI. Is there anything you can find on an ECG or is it just clean? There's nothing. Just clean. Just clean, nothing. No, don't confuse people. So you, there's different signs that you look for. In particular, ST depression is the is the hallmark of a non-STEMI, particularly a, non, a bad non-STEMI. More worrying sign. And, wh- and what I've seen a few times now is um, non-STEMI is missed because it was very subtle ST depression and they didn't really look at the, the pattern of the depression. Because mm. down-sloping ST depression, even if it's quite mild, you're, you're worried about. Like, that's very classic-looking, ischemic-type ST depression. Mm. Uh, otherwise, your T-wave inversion is the other thing you can comment on. Just say T-wave flattening or T-wave inversion or non-specific T-wave changes. But just be careful that if you get T-wave inversion in the setting of a bundle branch block or yeah. in a left ventricular hypertrophy yeah. or even in young women tend to get T-wave inversion in V2, V3, which can be confusing because there's also a well sign. Mm. But it can be a normal finding. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you've got you to look at old ECGs to see if it's a new finding as well. Also keep in mind that V1 has an, and AVR have inverted T-waves. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Another trap for young <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk about with uh, ST depression is that classically, what my grandma told me about non-STEMIs is that... You feel good about that? <laughs> good about that joke? Really good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> anyway, so the, the classic teaching is that ST depression doesn't localize to a territory. So subendocardial ischemia should just give you kind of diffuse ST depression. And if you do see like really localized bond or ST depression like it's lots of millimetres deep but only in a certain territory it looks like it's only in one artery then you've got to be thinking about reciprocal changes is this actually an ST elevation Somewhere and you go to, you, you flip to the opposite opposite leads and see if you can find some subtle yeah, ST elevation so if it's anterior you might try and get some posterior ones yeah. that sort of thing and the, the really commonly missed one is um, bad ST depression in 2-3 AVF and then they didn't look closely at 1 AVL for some like really right. subtle ST yeah. elevation That's and right. you know instead of sending them to the cath lab they're just giving them some clexane which is not really adequate treatment mm. That's right. so in Duncan's case what did he have? He had uh, widespread horizontal ST depression most prominent in leads 1-2 V4 and V6 and then he had some very subtle ST elevation in AVR like Curveball, we didn't even talk about that We did not teach you about this. Here we go. Uh, But this is is something I only learned a couple of weeks ago, and I feel like I should have known this a long time ago. But that's bad left main disease. So it's not a STEMI. It's not not necessarily a transmural infarct. But that particular ECG pattern of ST elevation in AVR and bad ST depression in V4, V6 is really bad left main disease, and they've got to get straight to the cath lab. Uh, this is where the majority of your left ventricle is supplied from. Yeah. It's being blocked yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, let's do something about yeah. that. All right, so next step, you've done your ECG, you've diagnosed the left main disease. You don't quite rest easy on your laurels yet. You send off a mm. blood test, and you send off a troponin, which is a very specific marker for cardiac muscle damage. Mm. Important things to know about troponin is what the time course of the rise is. Like, does it come up in minutes does it come up in hours like how long 
Um, and the peak is actually at 12 hours. So the peak troponin at 12 hours. So if you've got someone who's come in with chest pain for 13 hours and they've done a troponin that's normal, you can probably rest assured that he hasn't had some kind of heart attack. Unless six hours or eight hours into the chest pain, it mm. went from being a dull ache to a sudden raging, crushing pain that was going into yeah, the jaw. Yeah, then I'm like, if it's the same chest pain, yeah. of course. And But it, ta- it does take time to come up. So um, the elevation doesn't really happen for three hours. So if someone comes in, if they're a good patient and they come in straight away suspecting a heart attack and the first drop is normal, you can't leave it at that. You've got to do serial drops. And with each of those um, drops, do serial ECGs as well. The other thing that I only learned quite recently, it's not just the absolute rise. It's not just is it in the abnormal ranges. Um, it's it's the percentage. It's a percentage change. And you're looking for a 20 to 50% rise to signify a non-STEMI. Yeah, that's particularly relevant in people who have chronic kidney disease. Mm. So, you know, chronic kidney disease impairs your excretion of troponin. Mm-hmm. It's in your elevated troponin yeah, levels. Absolutely. And so in them, it's nice to see, well, what is this compared yeah, to exactly, normal? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there should be a nice rise and peak sort of yeah, thing. And yeah. You can talk about type 2 AMIs as well with the yeah. troponin leak, but we won't get into that now. Yeah, there's, lo- there's lots of other reasons for troponin to go up, like rate-related, atrial fibrillation is always a bit of a top rise, heart failure, but, the but they're mild, like they're mild rises. With, mm. in, with a high-sensitivity trop, you know, you'd see that like 100, 150 is, in my experience. But if someone has a banging non-STEMI, that's in the thousands, like mm. 2,000, 3,000, 10,000. Yep. So other, other blood marker you do, Rahul? Creatine kinase. Yeah, CK, so a bit of an older marker. Uh, and EDs around Australia tend to not like it so much. They just do the troponin because they want to cut costs and things, which is fair enough. But cardiologists love it, and there's a very specific reason why. I guess you want to be ordering a CK in someone who you have a reasonable suspicion that this is. ED won't do it. You have to, you have to do that as the physician or whoever. And we presume you're all physicians, I think. <laughs> but anyway, the reason you do a CK is you look for reinfarction. So C- CK rises similarly to TROP, but it just doesn't stay elevated for as long. Trop's so we said up. before, yeah, TROP stays elevated for 7 to 10 days, but CK comes up and down. So if someone's got an unstable not steaming on stable arteries, then, you know, they might reinfarct, and it's hard to know that if the chop's already risen from their old infarct. Some of you punks out there might say, hey, well, why don't you just do the CK instead of doing the troponin? Why are you wasting money getting a specific cardiac test? It's not, it's not as specific. That's right. It can be released by muscle death anyway. Exactly. Muscle yeah. trauma anyway. Yeah, exactly. So you need both. All right, so you've got this acute coronary syndrome. You've got a guy with unstable chest pain, and you don't know whether at this stage it's a non-STEMI, STEMI or whatever. You just know you've got a guy with an unstable ischemic centric chest pain. What do you do? So first thing is a relief. Get the chest pain away. And so no, you, you want to try and do that with nitrates with GTN because you want that vasodilating effect. Keep in mind that you don't want to use nitrates in someone who has just used Viagra in the last 24 hours. But more importantly, someone who has a blood pressure lower than 90 millimeters. And more importantly, someone in whom you suspect a right ventricular infarction. Mm, even more, more important. <laughs> No, I've got nothing else. <laughs> um, but so right ventricular infarction is someone who's got a raised JVP with clear lung fields. Yeah, so, and big peripheral edema, but they're, they're you know, essentially their left ventricle. And their blood pressure is not great. If you give them a nitro, they're screwed. Uh, basically, by that point in time, your dead right ventricle is just acting as a conduit for fluid yeah. to get from yeah, your yeah. veins into your exactly. left ventricle. Exactly. Your, yeah. So you don't so, want to decrease that preload anymore. Exactly. You can use morphine to get the chest pain under control, but it's not that popular anymore and I think there's a few studies that show that it's associated with some adverse events so try and avoid it if you can but if you're desperate really? That, I yeah. think the ACC AHA guidelines say that morphine is still the preferred painkiller in oh it's a preferred if you need a painkiller but mm. try and get it under control with GTM 
Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Um, beta blockers, uh, definitely good in the, in the yeah. initial period. And we'll talk about we'll talk about each of these in more detail as well. And then antiplatelet therapy, so that's aspirin, clopidogrel, 2B, 3A inhibitors as well. Um, and we'll talk more about we'll, that. We'll, we'll talk this about is a field detail. that's getting more and more complex yeah. as more stuff is coming out. Anticoagulant therapy, so that's heparin in particular, usually um, clexane. And then you give them a stat hydostatin. So that's chest pain relief, beta blockers, antiplatelet therapies, anticoagulant therapies, hydostatin. So that's what cardiology will want to be done before they get there. Mm. That needs to be done urgently. So beta blockers. So they, they work pretty well. Um, so there's a large observational study. So not randomized, but it showed that the um, they lowered the incidence of all-cause death. So it was 2.8% in people taking beta blockers in acute coronary syndrome. It was 4.1% in people that didn't. And the reason for that, as you can imagine, it slows down the heart and that kind of reduces ischemia. It's a long reduces list the amount of oxygen demand yeah, from the heart. A long list of stuff it does. It even affects like platelets. It decreases the amount of arrhythmia you have, so you're less likely to get a ventricular fibrillation, a ventricular tachycardia. It's good stuff. It's great stuff. Um, so you want to you want to give it to them within the first twenty four hours, and you actually want to keep them on it for three years after an acute event. In the long term, so it really prevents remodeling and again stops that arrhythmia. So you'll probably develop some sort of scar in yeah. your myocardium from all that, which can be a focus for ventricular tachycardia or even atrial arrhythmias, depending where it is. So if you're giving them a beta blocker, it suppresses that yeah. reentrant circuit around the scar. And metoprolol is your, your kind of drug of choice, your poison of choice. Mm. Unless they've got a very decreased LV yeah. function, and then you start looking at some of the heart failure-specific ones. I've just noticed that we're 25 minutes deep. We're going to have to... Yeah, let's speed this one up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so aspirin. It's good stuff. Everyone knows about aspirin. Low-dose aspirin irreversibly blocks the formation of thromboxane A2 which produces an inhibitory effect on platelet aggregation, so they don't pull together as much. Uh, there's an unfortunately named study called ISIS-2, mm, that was not well <laughs> which has 17,000 patients in it, um, and that showed that the five-week vascular mortality was reduced by 23%, so that's pretty good. Like People think aspirin doesn't work too well, but it's really important to bang that on. Uh, Clopidogrel is the next drug we'll talk about. That's an antagonist of the P2Y12 receptor. Again, uh, P2Y12 is important in the activation of platelets and cross-linking with fibrin. So the benefit isn't quite as dramatic as aspirin, or at least the absolute risk reduction isn't quite as dramatic. Um, it, adding on clopidogrel to aspirin reduces the primary endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MIO stroke from 9.3% to 11.4%. So a bit of, of course. difference. That's the reverse. It actually goes from 11.4 to It's a good thing. Yeah, it works in a good way. Clopidogrel has fallen a little bit out of fashion these days, although we still use a little bit. And that's because it's a pro-drug. So when someone eats their clopidogrel, they're not eating what's effective. It needs to go through the liver to be activated, which means that as soon as you start playing around with enzymes, then you've got different genetics and some people don't metabolize it as well. And uh, so we've moved on to ticagrelor, which is another P2Y12 um, receptor inhibitor, and that doesn't need any hepatic activation. It's not a project. It just starts working straight away. The other advantage with ticagrelor, which was demonstrated in the PLATO trial, is that it, uh, it, was, it was even better than clopidogrel in reducing the primary endpoint and mm. mortality. Mm. Um, and on top of that, there was no increase in major bleeding. Mm-hmm. 
The only thing to keep in mind with clopidogrel and ticagrelor is that ticagrelor is only justified in the use of in uh, acute coronary syndromes, whereas clopidogrel in terms of non-elective you know, stenting. Yeah, like ongoing use, you use clopidogrel, yeah. but acutely use ticagrelor. All right, so the last group of antiplatelet agents, so this is the GP2B3A inhibitors, and they work by preventing platelet aggregation again, obviously, and thrombus formation. They do so by inhibiting this GP2B3A receptor on the surface of the platelets. So two main drugs, abciximab, coolest name ever, and tyrofibin. So abciximab is a cath lab drug, don't worry about it too much, but tyrofibin is something we use in non-STEMIs as kind of like the last line of treatment. So not used in STEMIs because they already would have been thrombolized or used... Um, to the cath lab, but a non-STEMI that has this ongoing unstable pain you can't get under control with all your other stuff, you give them some tyrofiban. You will sometimes see tyrofiban <laughs> used after very invasive procedures where they've gone and done yep. angioplasty without actually putting a stent in and yep. things. Yeah. All right, so anticoagulant therapy, this is the last thing we're going to talk about, So, or second last, sorry. So that's either heparin or unfractionated heparin. Um, usually we tend to use clexane. So use it in both STEMIs and non-STEMIs. And uh, in a non-STEMI type situation, you use it for two to five days. And in a STEMI situation, you usually stop it after they've gone to the cath lab. Um, and it's the, actually, it's an interesting hole in cardiology evidence. They consider them the kings of evidence-based medicine, but this is something that's never really been it. tested. We never revel in this. <laughs> <laughs> All you've got is a measly... Frisk trial <laughs> doesn't even sound like a real trial. It's not a thousand five hundred and six patients, baby. It's, it's, <laughs> it's nothing. Um, which uh, was uh, people randomly signed either placebo or delta parent, and the rate of death of, of uh, new MI was significantly lower in patients treated with delta parent. It's one point eight versus four point eight percent. So, a bit of evidence. Um, all right, moving on to high dose statin. This is an interesting one. It doesn't seem like something you'd be giving acutely, right? Someone comes in with acute coronary syndrome. You would think about the statin when they leave hospital for their ongoing risk, but it actually has been shown that giving statins before they even go to the cath lab high dose, 80 milligrams of atorvastatin, does improve their outcomes. All right, so STEMIs um, obviously have a particular management pathway. So this is a transmural infarct. It's a medical emergency. Time is myocardium. Absolutely. If you're at a big tertiary quaternary hospital or whatever, it's a very easy decision. You call the cardiologist and they will take care of things from there. there. They'll take it to the cath lab. But if you're a a new med reg out in the country like I am at the moment, it can be a little bit trickier. Current guidelines are that if you're less than 120 minutes away, then you just transfer them. Um, In normal speak, that's less than two hours away. Yeah, yeah. Transfer them (laughs) for PCI. But if they're they're greater than two hours away, then you've got to thrombolize them. Okay. And then transfer them after that. And there there is um, advocation for this new approach called the pharmacoinvasive approach where you just do both. So basically you give them thrombolysis and you send them for facilitated PCI where they go and sort out stuff later. Don't worry about that too much for now. Two hours is the current cutoff. So in um, PCR-wise, so you generally try and aim to do it within 12 hours. If the patient is stable when it's been more than 12 hours, you wouldn't do it. But if if they've still got ongoing chest pain or they're hemodynamically unstable, we still take them to the cath lab. Mm. Um, 24, up, 36, to, up to 24 hours. 36 hours. 36 hours, really. 36 Jesus, hours, like yeah. Two years later, they're yeah, still yeah, doing yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, bam. Uh, can you still bill? Do they have private insurance? Yes, <laughs> you take them to the cath lab. So... Non-STEMIs get angiograms as well, um, and the question is when. So there's a really good uh, tool to help you make that dis- decision, and that's the TIMI 
um, risk stratification store, score. So this is one of those things you just plug plug into the app or whatever you're using. And that uses their age, the presence of risk factors, the prior coronary stenosis, presence of ST segment deviation, so that's ST depression here, at least two anginal episodes in 24 hours, elevated TROPS or CK, and the use of aspirin in prior seven days. So that's a risk factor. So if they've used aspirin and they've still got an on that's a risk factor. Plug all those factors in and it'll give you a risk score. And if it's intermediate or high, you've got to get them to the cath lab straight away. But if it's low, you can kind of treat it more conservatively. And that is how you manage and understand acute coronary syndrome. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Stop it. I thought you were going to do that, to be honest. Blooper reel. <laughs>